Music has an incredible ability to proclaim the soul's language beyond what mere words can speak. That is what we seek as we invite our guests to share their song of the soul. Be it joy and laughter, sorrow and tears, awe and insight, or deepest devotion, as we visit and listen, we are all part of a spiritual voyage called Song of the Soul. I got to know Andy Douglas a bit a few months ago when he was my guest for my Song of the Soul program, talking about some of the winners for last year's Songs for Social Change contest, for which he was a judge. I learned that there was a lot more about Andy I wanted to know, including about two books he wrote. Today we'll be talking mostly about Redemption Songs, A Year in the Life of a Prison Community Choir, and we'll also discuss bits of his 2013 memoir, The Curve of the World into the Spiritual Heart of Yoga, about his seven years in Asia as a devotee and monk with Ananda Marga. Redemption Songs is a powerful and personal book about the U.S. prison industry, but also especially about Andy Douglas's experiences of singing in a choir of prison insiders and prison outsiders. We have a full uncut version of this interview on northernspiritradio.org, as well as bonus excerpts. We'll have Andy join us on Zoom in just a moment. First, I want to share a recording of the group Andy sang with, the Oakdale Community Choir, one of their performances of Beauty Before Me. And then we'll talk to Andy.
Andy, it's so wonderful to have you back to Norton Spirit Radio for Spirit in Action. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. I enjoyed our conversation a few months ago about the Rawa contest and looking forward to talking with you again. That contest goes on. I mean, we talked about six of the songs that were the top finalists, the winners of last year's contest. This year's, which I think ends somewhere like in November, is in progress. Is that stuff in your head right now? I haven't opened anything yet, but at some point I will. But the main reason I have you here is because we're going to talk mainly about your book from 2019, Redemption Songs, A Year in the Life of a Community Prison Choir. We'll also be touching on your autobiography, memoir, The Curve of the World into the Spiritual Heart of Yoga. But we'll get to that eventually. I think we'll mainly start with your recent events. What's big in your spiritual life and in your activism life this year? We're 2021. Oh, interesting question. Well, I'm continuing to write. I'm working on a couple of writing projects. I'm also corresponding with some people in prison and some immigrants who have been imprisoned in Iowa. So I'm doing some of that work. And I am working with a team of people who are promoting a socioeconomic theory called Prout which is related to the spiritual path that I'm on. And we can talk more about that if you want, but that's been taking up some of my time as well. Regressive utilization theory. Well, we can talk about that, but first let's talk about prison. Before we talk about your time with the prison choir, and again, this is a prison community choir, so half the people are insiders, half the people are outsiders, and you are one of the outsiders. Have you ever spent time in jail in the U.S. or in any of those countries that you lived in, in Southeast Asia or Korea, whatever? You never got to go to prison? (laughs) Never got to go, no. (laughs) No, I had never been inside a prison before I stepped foot inside the Oakdale prison in 2010, I think it was. So I didn't really know what to expect. You know, I had images, I had preconceptions, but... I've never been inside an actual prison. My first visit was visiting someone who had contacted the Quaker meeting in Milwaukee. He clearly had some mental issues, mental, emotional. He wasn't very stable that way. But when he came out, he visited the Quaker meeting. And some people were just scared of him. And I imagine there's so much of that. What was your initial experience going into the prison? What did it do to your heart? You know, I had driven by the prison and there's all this barbed wire and towers and it's a kind of imposing place. Although I think many people don't even know that the prison exists. They don't give any thought to the people there. We tend to kind of forget about people who have gone inside, unfortunately. I was a little bit anxious or nervous going in. You know, this is a place where people have committed serious crimes are corralled together. And you grow up seeing all these prison movies and there's all these tropes from books and songs and films about prison. So, you know, I I had a, a certain preconception. But the men in the choir, when we first went in, they were very welcoming. They're very happy to have people coming in to spend time with them. They were complicated, like we all are, but there was no sense of of danger or threat or anything like that. They wanted to sing. We wanted to sing. And slowly, over time, you know, we would chat. We would get to know each other a little bit within the parameters that we could discuss things. Slowly, it became less about us and them or insider-outsider 
And it just sort of merged into one entity, into a choir, which was a beautiful thing. I really found it very interesting what you lay out as the parameters about how you're supposed to associate with the insiders. Again, you know, when you go into anything of this level, and that I don't know if it's true for minimum security, but medium or maximum security, you've got to get rid of everything. One of our group who went in had an underwire bra, had to remove that because there's a wire there. It'll set off the alarm. You're certainly not going to carry your phone or anything in there. You you have a locker you can put things in. But it's kind of imposing to do that. And then when you go through this door and then it locks behind you and then the next door and locks behind you and you've got people watching you from behind screens. And it's fairly intimidating for a person from the outside. And I don't know on the inside just how soul deadening it is. But one of the things I found extremely strange you're doing this choir with people, and I think to some degree, part of it is to prepare people to go on the outsider to minimize some of those walls between us. And you're not supposed to talk to people, or you're not supposed to visit with them. You're not supposed to, I, more than names is kind of verboten. Talk about those parameters. We went through an orientation as community members going in to volunteer in the prison. And one of the things they said was... I think it's wonderful hearing the police siren in the background there. <laughs> did you set that up? I did. You know, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a constant presence in the world. One of the things we were told was that we're not there to become friends with these men. It's kind of like we're doing this job of volunteering. You go in, you sing with these people, and you come out, and you're, you're not there to be friends with them. And in fact, it could be dangerous to be friends with them. This is what we were told. But that's kind of the boilerplate talk. That's kind of what they tell everybody. And it really did not sync up with reality. And I think probably the officials understood that that was going to happen, too. Because if you go in, if you sit next to someone for an hour and a half once a week, and you're sharing this task, you're learning to sing this, this song together, you know, you're going to crack jokes, you're going to point out different things about the song, and you're going to ask the person how they're doing today. It's inevitable that you start to develop a relationship and that you start to develop a friendship with people that you're singing with. So we did, we kind of ignored that advice or that parameter of don't become friends. And over time, it just became a relationship like with anyone else. Once you're in that mindset, in that frame of working on a creative project together, doing something artistic, solving problems, it's a completely different way of relating. And you become connected with these people around you. It's, it's a pretty beautiful thing. And I think that's the point of the choir, you know, is to transcend that us-them mentality and help them understand, help us understand there I am, I'm saying them and us again, but help everyone in the choir understand that we're just human beings spending time together. I was particularly impressed by the stories you told about the woman who was the founder of this, the hoops you have to jump through in order to get into the prison system and how that can be revoked at any moment by someone else being put in power or, or a political situation on the outside, regardless of whether it's good for anyone. Could you tell us about your conductor? Sure. Her name is Dr. Mary Cohen. She's a professor of music at the University of Iowa. She did her PhD on choirs in prisons, and then she was hired at Iowa, and it had always been her dream to start a combined choir in a prison here. She's a very interesting and dynamic person. I mean, you can't imagine how challenging it is to stand in front of a room 
of very diverse people with very diverse backgrounds. Some of the guys have concentration issues or disciplinary issues. They like to chat, whatever. And she somehow brings us all together with a common, she has a vision, you know, and she shares that vision beautifully. It's not without challenges and she makes her share of mistakes, you know. Early on, she would select the music and sometimes people really didn't care for the music that she was choosing, you know. So that has evolved over time as well, especially as many of the songs are now being written by the insiders, which is a really interesting development. So a whole songwriting workshop grew out of the choir on a different day. She is funny and capable and has a big heart, you know. I mean, I think she's not only interested in creating music, but she has a very keen understanding of the challenges of the carceral system. And she wants to use this whole program as a way to address a lot of the issues, the larger issues facing the system. So that's very inspiring. What specifically caused you Why did Andy Douglas go and join the Oakdale Community Choir, which led, of course, then to your book, Redemption Songs? But what was your specific motivation? It's a good question. I've always loved to sing. And I sang in the church choir growing up. Uh, I sang in college. And I've continued to sing throughout my life in Asia. Devotional music was a very strong part of the practice of my spiritual path. So I'm aware of the power of singing and the beauty of singing together, the kind of energy, the kind of synchronicity that can be created. That was in my mind. And at the same time, I'm very interested in issues of social, racial, economic justice and was kind of looking for a project where I could put my energy that would not just be an intellectual engagement, but like put my body into something, you know, an embodied presence and embodied activism, connecting with people who had been impacted, in this case, by the carceral system. It kind of came together. I heard about this choir and it seemed like an ideal opportunity to sing and to put some of my values into practice. When Dr. Mary Cohen recruits or accepts applications to be part of the choir from either the insiders or the outsiders, is there a standard she uses? Is there a tonality you already better have to have achieved? Is there a personality, any kind of thing that would include you in or out? <laughs> it's a pretty wide open acceptance process. You know, she often says that anyone can sing, even those who think that they can't sing or can't carry a tune, they're welcome in the choir. Uh, that creates its own set of challenges sometimes. <laughs> I think the idea is more that we're going to share this together. We're going to create a community. We're going to demonstrate that everyone has some capacity to sing together. In terms of the musicality aspect, anyone can join. <laughs> what about motivations? I mean, if you're related to someone who's in there, can you not go in then? I think there are some restrictions if you have connections with insiders. I, I do believe there are some restrictions there. But I don't think that ever arose as far as our choir was concerned. I understand one of the rules is you're not supposed to have contact with them outside. I mean, you can sing next to them. You spend an hour and a half a week with them, but you're not supposed to connect with them as people outside. Right. You're not supposed to call or write or anything like that. Yeah. So it's a very specific time and space that you are um, being a volunteer in that environment. Well, you frequently quote Henry at the end of your chapters. 
he was an insider. So are all of those writings after he got out or where did that come from? Thanks for bringing that up. In the book, at the end of each chapter, I include a little bit of writing from one or another insider. And in fact, Henry was not in Oakdale. He was in another prison. And I was corresponding with him separately. Unfortunately, his health was not great. I, he was such an incredible writer. His, you would not believe his letters. You can get some sense of that in, in the little snippets that I put at the end of the chapter. Wow, very thoughtful person. He passed away inside he had some liver problem, liver failure, and passed away maybe four or five years ago. However, there have been a number of inside singers who have been released, returned to society, and a few of them have come back and joined the choir as outside singers, which is really interesting. Wow. So they're going back into the prison as a member of the community, boying up, I would think, the people are inside. Like, look at me. I did it. You can do it, too. Let me take a little side path here. The other book I mentioned that we're going to talk about is The Curve of the World into the Spiritual Heart of Yoga. It's your journey going to Southeast Asia. You're following a spiritual path there in Asia. One of the outcomes of this seven-year-long path is major sickness on your part. I don't know if it came to liver disease or just exactly what, but I have a feeling somehow trying to pursue what you really care about with that deep of an illness weighing on you, holding you back. And there were periods where you had to withdraw from doing your work periodically until you ended up coming back to Iowa. Sickness, in what you just mentioned about Henry and his liver disease, I I have this intuition that there's some connection there. I don't know what it is. Good luck. <laughs> uh, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that setup. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see here. Let's unpack some of this. Um, human frailty. We're all frail. We're all subject to weakness, to illness, to frailties of all kind. We can learn from our illnesses. I certainly learned a lot. Learned how to practice self-care. Learned how to cultivate my energy and put my energy into the things that really mattered and not try and do everything all at once, but just focus on a few things. I learned that energy is a very fickle yet powerful thing, and you can create energy in your body, but you can't always do that to the degree you may want to, you know. But but being in, a, in an environment of good energy gives one buoyancy. It can give one some good health. And conversely, that's why so many of the men inside have terrible health problems because the food is bad, the environment is bad, there's constant anxiety, there's constant sense of fear and threat and worry about what's going to happen when they leave, they don't know what the future holds for them. It's an extremely anxious, anxiety-creating environment, and that can lead to all sorts of health problems. Well, part of your experience in Asia, the seven years as a devotee, you were doing work there. Very frequently, you were working with amongst the most impoverished and limited in so many ways in their lives. And I understand that the organization, uh, Nandamarga, was outlawed by the government in the state you were in there in India. And so that when you wanted to get in to see your guru, to see the leader, 
the police were ready to grab you at any time. And that, one of the reasons I wonder if you spent time in jail or prison oh. was because <laughs> they nabbed you, didn't they, when you're trying well, to go in? I have a section in the book about that. That was part of the big adventure. At one point, Ananda Margaret, because the founder of the organization, his name was Prabhat Ramjan Sarkar, he was kind of a visionary, radical social activist. He believed that everybody deserved the proper requirements for life. Everyone deserved a good job. And looking around, he saw that society was not like that. There was exploitation. There was corruption. There was incredible hoarding and inequity of wealth. So he was very critical of all of that. He was critical of the economic structure. He was critical of religious hypocrisy and dogma. And that made him some enemies. And so, and, and he proposed some alternative ways of structuring society, more cooperative-based economy, limiting the inequity of wealth, you know, having a ceiling on the amount of wealth accumulation, some very radical ideas that make pretty good sense to me when you think about it, given the situation we're in now and how capitalism has kind of brought us to the state we're in. He was critical of communism as well. Anyway, so the upshot was that his organization was banned. He was thrown in jail for a while. And his disciples, like me, were blacklisted from entering India. So we had to get very creative in terms of how we were able to enter the country. And we were able to enter. Once I, I flew into Kathmandu and crossed the border, this very small border crossing with a shawl over my head, pretending to be a local person. And <laughs> so it was quite an adventurous time. But I, I think the larger point is that when you stand up and say something about what you see is going wrong, in the world and offer an alternative, that's a beautiful thing, but there'll also be pushback, you know, so you have to strengthen yourself and be prepared and continue to speak out against what you think is wrong. Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're speaking with Andy Douglas. AndyDouglas.net is a website where you'll find a link to his books and a lot of his other work. It's it's not like he's a one-dimensional person. He's not only on the two-dimensional paper that he expresses himself. There's there's music of his you'll want to connect with, and we're sharing a little bit of that here today for Spirit in Action. You can find the link to Andy via NorthernSpiritRadio.org, along with links to all of our guests of the past 16 years, including the interview I did with him as Rawa, that's the Renaissance Artists and Writers Association. They sponsor an annual contest that's called Songs for Social Change. And I talked to him about last year's winners for volume five of the winners for that. And I've interviewed a couple of those people already. You can listen to my interview with Andy for that and all the other people. And there's a place for you to post comments. We really love to hear from you. Please reach out to us and let us know you're listening. There's a place to donate. That's how we do this full-time work. And remember to support your local community radio stations. Another thing about Andy is that in addition to being multi-talented in the areas of writing, and singing. He's also worked on radio and such too. Could you tell our listeners where you worked and how you worked? Oh gosh, it's been a while. When I came back from Asia, I lived in a little town of Northwest Iowa called Fort Dodge. There's a community college there and they had a NPR affiliate there. And the great thing about returning to a small town, a small pond from a big pond, is that if you have an idea, you can pretty easily get it implemented. So I had this idea to create a world music show at KTPR, and I just pitched it, and I said, yeah, come on, do it. (laughs) 
So I had a world music show there for a couple years. Then I started doing on-air shifts, you know, reading the news and the weather and the time and that kind of thing. And when I came to Iowa City, I also worked for a couple years at the local affiliate here at WSUI. But it's been years since I've really done radio work. And my programs go out specifically to community radio stations as opposed to public radio stations. There's uh, Community radio stations actually have a considerably freer hand. Public radio has its limitations, particularly considering it's got some public funding, governmental funding. And for Northern Spirit Radio, our funding comes from individuals. It can come from an organization, a nonprofit organization particularly. But we do not support businesses or government. We don't depend upon them for our support. So. Please do support us, but even more so, support your local media alternatives so that you have freer access to both news and to music. I mean, the world music that you were sharing, Andy, I think is a, a key part that is missing from so many people's lives in the United States. It's pretty easy to ignore the fact that there's hundreds of other countries in the world that we know almost nothing about. And you've lived in several of them that are very little known. Your time in Korea certainly sounds most challenging because of your health issues at that time, but also language and other issues. But let's get back, Andy, to specifically some issues about prison. Again, the book, Redemption Songs, A Year in the Life of a Community Prison Choir. Half the people in the choir are insiders, half of them are outsiders. Andy is one of the outsiders, writes about this. And what I love about the book is you're telling your personal story, your experience of it, and you regularly fill us in about the bigger issues, the big political justice, equality issues, all of these things. So, for instance, when we grow up in the United States, we tend to think it's just normal what happens in our prisons. But we're crazy by far. We jail a higher percentage of the population than any other country. And that's just crazy. I mean, the United States, the land of the free, has more people in prison. And you talk a little bit about that. You know, we have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners. We have a quarter of the world's prisoners in the United States, which is just insane. And it hasn't always been that way. A lot of the big growth in prison population came about in the 80s and 90s. There was the drug war. There was an increase in sentences, in length of sentences for drugs. Reagan had a lot to do with that, but Clinton had a lot to do with that as well. There was a kind of get tough mentality uh, you know, uh, there was a three strikes and you're out law. Prosecutors became a little bit harsher during that period. So there are a lot of reasons why there was this boom. I think in recent years, people have started to realize what a mistake that was and what a waste of potential that was to just warehouse all these folks instead of offering alternatives like treatment, rehabilitation programs, job training, education. You know, that's really the way to address the problems that lead to crime is to offer opportunities for people to engage themselves, to improve themselves, that kind of thing. Education is key. Even as you're talking about personal experience and you're having experiences you're having with the choir in your personal life, how you go into a prison and what your experience is, you talk about things like recidivism. So this does not come off as some kind of a lecture 
but it's your learning experience spending those seven or so years dealing with the prison system uh, and having friends inside. Recidivism is such a crazy thing. You would think that one of the highest priorities would be that people are not going back into prison. But so many of the things that make it so that people don't go back into prison end up getting forbidden. Yeah. Well, I have a section in the book about prison in Norway, which is kind of interesting. In Norway, not only is this particular prison and all of the prisons in Norway, very healthier environment in terms of light, fresh air, ability to move around, be outdoors, trust between the officers and the inmates, all these things. But the Norway correctional system guarantees every released convict a house and a job. <laughs> Can you imagine? Right. Well, we don't guarantee that for anybody in this country. No, no, not even whether the prisoners or not. But when you're released, you get a place to live and you get a job. Those are the big obstacles to people leaving prison. People don't trust them. It's very hard for them to get a job. They're asked often on employment applications if they've been a felon, and often if they check yes, that's it. You know, they're not going to get the job. And housing is a very difficult challenge. These kinds of things, if we could reduce the barriers, if we could reduce the barriers in our minds towards accepting these people back into our human society, you know, it would go a long way towards reducing that recidivism rate. Because if you have no option, if you have no support system, no job, no place to live, what are you going to do? You're going to think about where you had last word that you had at least three meals a day, you know. There's also an element of race, which is a big deal in the prison system. You're living in Iowa, Iowa City, which I've been to. My wife, since she grew up in the Amana colonies, just 20 miles away, I mean, this is she's a next-door neighbor, essentially, to you. Iowa is pretty darn white overall, or it has been. It's changing a little bit, but it's pretty white. But the weird thing is, or maybe it's not weird, maybe it's completely predictable considering the racism that's so part and parcel of American life, is the percentage of black people behind bars versus those in the community. And the fact that, by the way, they can't be anywhere near their families because <laughs> they got to be in a prison that's in a white, you know, it's got a little black island in a white sea. Yeah, I think it's 20, I can't remember the percentage. It might be 28% of the prison population. Is, I, I, I don't recall now. I have, that, I have that stat in the book. But it's kind of an insane statistic, the number of people of color making up the prison system. It's completely disproportional. What can one say? We live in a racist society. There's police brutality against people of color. There's the drug war in which... Actually, there's a statistic that white people used cocaine more than black people. But as we know, black people went to prison at much higher rates, especially with the crack cocaine factor. This is a topic that I'm very interested in. I think we as a society, we need to continue to grapple with our racist tendencies we need to continue to understand our racist history in the society. We have a lot of work to do, not only on an institutional level with police brutality and school brutality, school to prison pipeline, but as individuals, you know, as individuals, we have to grapple with our own. Every human being has that tendency to close themselves off from someone who's different, you know, and we need to work on opening and being more vulnerable and welcoming and understanding and reaching out to people who, for some 
biological, geographical reason may look a little bit different. Everybody looks different. (laughs) And you certainly had a chance to see this at a pretty young age in your seven years in Asia with Ananda Marga either as an Acharya or as a Margi, you got to see all different kinds of races and ethnic groups and their interactions. You got to see governments, which certainly can be every bit as oppressive as the United States government ever has been. Did that in some way prepare you to deal better with the issue of race when you went into prison? I think absolutely. When I went to training to become a monk, I did that in the Philippines. So I was one of maybe 30 young men who was training to become monks. And there were maybe two or three of us from a European background. Others were from other Asian countries, the Philippines, some from Africa. So I was a minority there. And of course, our philosophy was one of embracing the diversity of humanity and seeing the spiritual unity of humanity. So there wasn't racism in that respect, but it can be challenging to live in close quarters with people from very different cultural backgrounds. And that's a great experience. You have to learn how to understand why people do the things they do and allow yourself to be understood why you're doing these stupid things sometimes. So yes, to move in circles of very different cultures is so mind-opening. I think young people should go and spend time abroad, maybe in high school, spend a semester abroad or something, because it gives you this universal perspective on humanity that we may do things slightly differently, but underneath there are the same desires to be loved, to have a family, to have meaning, to be productive. You know, on those kinds of issues, we're all the same, really. And so those cultural differences begin to assume less importance. I appreciate the way that you put that, Andy. And by the way, folks, we are speaking with Andy Douglas today for Spirit in Action, amongst other things. He's the author of two books that we're trying to include in today's discussion. The most important, from my point of view right now, is Redemption Songs, A Year in Life of Community Prison Choir. And Andy's also the author of a 2013 book, The Curve of the World into the Spiritual Heart of Yoga. And what you were just talking about, Andy, about your time abroad, about your time in Asia, one of the things that I ended up seeing, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo in West Africa for two years, and I've traveled in Africa a fair amount since then, is I was a privileged minority there. Compared to what people in the U.S., I was poor, but compared to most people in my village where I lived, I was rich. And I was there helping. There's no mistaking that that was my work. And so people were pleasantly disposed towards me. They also liked having a rich friend, right? I don't want to put anyone down who aspires to have a way out of their destitute life or their very limited life. So I'm not knocking that, but it's a fact of life. And I watch it happen in so many ways, in so many levels. And it happens in every country. You spent some years in Korea. I'm sure you saw it there. And the thing I think of in terms of racism, certainly the U.S. has this horrible problem of several hundred years of racism against blacks or even people with brown or even at one point people who are from Ireland who weren't considered white. But I think of Japan and their attitudes towards Koreans. It's blatant racism. In Philippines, I assume it happens, and I assume it happens in Malaysia and Indonesia and everywhere else, India, certainly. In Togo, where I lived, there were some 40 different tribes throughout this small country. 
and they had their attitudes towards one another. So what was your experience about racism that way? Well, it's a great topic that you bring up. You know, I think human beings have their work cut out for them, for us, which is to expand our consciousness, to expand the scope of our understanding and open our hearts. I think this is the most important work for us as a species right now, because we have all these small-minded attachments and beliefs, and we're attached to our clan and our little group, our little place. You know, that's a beautiful thing to have love for your place and your people, but it's not working out for us. You know, there's so much conflict and dispute and these limiting ideas of the mind. I think our challenge right now is to expand our consciousness to a point where we embrace everyone in a loving way. You know, we're trying to focus a fair amount in this hour, Andy, on your experience with Oakdale Community Choir. The seven or so years that you were active with Dr. Mary Cohen's choir, the Oakdale Community Choir, you talk about the ins and outs of state government and what they allow and won't allow and the programs that were very helpful in terms of reducing recidivism that got shut down. Can you say any more detail about what was limited or changed because of anachronistic thinking, the three strikes you're out, or you violated this while you're on parole, and so now you're back in prison, your parole is revoked, those kind of things. Do you remember any of them? Yeah, I write a little bit about how, you know, researchers have demonstrated that education is the primary factor in determining recidivism. Those people inside prison who study, get higher degrees, even high school degrees, but also college degrees, they almost to a person, at least for the higher degrees, do not recidivate. You know, there's a very clear relationship between education and reform. So it's kind of ironic that for a while there, a lot of states were starting to clamp down again on education programs. And this may have to do with funding priorities. It also has to do with sort of the cycle of how we perceive criminals Politicians often manipulate this idea of get tough on crime in order to get into office. And that has consequences. You know, it means that people are not as disposed to these kinds of reformative, transformative programs. So, you know, programs from time to time are cut. I think I wrote something about the California state system cutting a lot of arts and education programs. But also, as I said, these things go in cycles, and I'm hopeful that we're starting to see a change toward opening up again and recognizing the importance of a lot of this work towards helping people to rehabilitate themselves. I'm always aware, as I read books, for mentions of Quakers. We're such a tiny percentage of the population. In U.S. history, Quakers have been influential in both positive and negative ways positive because a lot of Quakers are part of Underground Railroad and worked hard for abolition of slavery. But Quakers also were influential in the development of the penitentiary system, the penitentiary as in penitence. That is to say, I'm sorry for my crime. If I meditate on it, I can feel sorry for it and I can come out into the world cleansed of my sin or something like that. And in the early 1800s, Quakers certainly had some influence about that. Another way that Quakers have influence is with the Alternatives to Violence program. It originated with Quakers working in the prison system in New York, and it's spread everywhere, not just to prisons, but uh, Rwanda and Burundi. It was part of the healing from genocide that happened there. 
and it's been used with inner city gangs as well. Could you talk about experience of Alternatives to Violence program and its influence on any of the prison system you've seen? I can. I have not been personally involved with the AVP. I've simply seen seen it from afar, so to speak, knowing both insiders and outsiders who have participated in it. You know, my understanding is that it helps people develop ways to deal with anger, to deal with their feelings, to manage their feelings. It helps them learn skills, conflict resolution skills, for example, cooperation, communication, and also dealing with difficult emotions like fear and anger. And I know they also do a lot of play to create sense of trust among the I I think basically, at least here at Oakdale, it would be like a weekend long little retreat, you know, like Saturday and Sunday, they would get together. Again, creating that trust through different play exercises. Like I recall hearing they would do the the old exercise where one person would fall backwards into the arms of another. Trust fall? Yeah, trust fall. And there was one very large man who was just so delighted to be able to... Uh, it would take a few people, you know, but, but someone would He ain't hold. heavy. He's my brother. <laughs> right. <laughs> so talking with some of the men about it, they were very positive about their experience and about how it helped them to shift their thinking a little bit, not be so self-involved, but see how their actions impacted others and see themselves in a different light. I, I think that's really what a lot of this is about, is helping people inside who come from very often very difficult backgrounds of trauma and abuse and don't have the skills to perceive themselves in a new light. So by giving them some of these skills, they can see themselves as, as having a potential or possibility to be a person who does not act in this way. You know, and that's a huge shift. You already mentioned, Andy, that there was a songwriters group that grew out of the prison community choir experience. You mentioned a song, for instance, by Armand. So much more is the song. And when you talk about someone seeing themselves as being able to transcend what the community normally sees prisoners as being, that song comes to me as one of those examples. Yeah, one of my favorite guys in in the choir was Armand. Of course, all these names are pseudonyms, but he was an African-American guy, son of a preacher, very lively, very has sparkle in his eye. And he wrote some great songs. He wrote this song called So Much More, which was just so moving. Let me just read a few lines. You are so much more than a victim of rape. You are so much more than a random sex mate. You are so much more than your thoughts of being defeated. You are so much more than a child that's mistreated. You are so much more than the label of a thug. You are so much more than your addiction to drugs. You are so much more than the late night cries. You are so much more than your thoughts of suicide. You are so much more than a human they dog. When I see you, I see a child of God. Boy, I get chills just reading that, you know, and remembering when he performed it. It was a rap song. And the choir had had a musical backing to it. It just roused the audience. You know, this was performed in concert. The choir performed several concerts a year. And people just stood up and cheered at the end of that. It was a beautiful, so honest. Maybe we should mention something about the concerts that you gave. Because a number of people might think, so are you just like Johnny Cash going in and singing in Folsom Prison? Or is it just the prisoners, the insiders who are hearing you? 
or is this the community? Who showed up for these performances? So the format of the of the rehearsals was to prepare a slate of music for two concerts at the end of each season. So in the fall, in December, we would have a concert for the fall, and then in May, we would have one for the spring. So these two concerts, one would be for other insiders. Everyone in the prison was welcome to come, and we would we'd give a concert for them. And then the other one, a week later, would be for people from the community. And this was actually a pretty hot ticket. People really liked to come to this. And uh, we used it as an opportunity to inform and spread awareness about some of these issues. So we would invite political leaders. We invited the president of the university. We invited people who might have some ability to influence policy. Because when they would come and have this experience of people inside singing and being positive and interacting in a very positive way with other people, it really impacted them. But then there would just be like family members of insiders and friends of outsiders and anyone who was interested in, in the choir would come. And we usually get about 300 people packed into the gymnasium where we did the concerts. It was a great time. You know, we all got... <laughs> We had the pre-concert jitters and we propped each other up and then we, we had prepared all semester long. So we were pretty, we were pretty tight and the, the audiences responded really well. And the men from the inside had this opportunity to talk with audience members afterwards and field questions about what it's like to be in a choir. And it was just a beautiful culmination of, of our work. It sounds wonderful. One of the other things you talk about in the book, Andy, is it's it's called various things, but one of the things it's called restorative justice. And I understand you gave the sermon, the lecture, whatever, at a UU churches about restorative justice for quite a while. I've interviewed people even locally here in Eau Claire, this idea of restorative justice as opposed to retributive justice. Just what's your understanding? What has Andy Douglas learned about restorative justice and and is it happening? <laughs> yeah, I think it's happening. I mean, it's a fantastic idea that takes a lot of commitment and energy and openness to implement or to embrace. I mean, basically, it's about accountability. It's about getting the different parties that are involved in a crime, for example, together, if possible, if it's not, you know, I mean, some crimes, you don't want those parties together, like a sexual crime, the victim might not want to be in the same room with the perpetrator. But for some situations, trying to get the person who committed the crime to be accountable, take responsibility, understand their impact, trying to get the community to understand why this happened, what the context, the background was, trying to get the victim involved and maybe some dialogue between the victim and the perpetrator. It's all community-based. When the community frays, restorative justice tries to mend that fray and bring people together to understand the dynamics involved and to restore the sense of community that hopefully was there before. You know, there's also transformative justice, which kind of works on a larger level, which is working to transform the institutions and the situations of poverty and crime that exist on a larger level. Those two are related somewhat, I would say. You'll get glimpses of them as you read Redemption Songs, A Year in the Life of a Community Prison Choir by Andy Douglas. For a deep dive into larger culture and spiritual transformation, also consider reading his book, The Curve of the World into the Spiritual Heart of Yoga. It's a memoir by Andy. 
His website, again, is andydouglas.net. And that's not all you can find about him. You can find about his music, the CD of devotional songs from the Ananda Marga movement that he produced, for the songs that were by Prabhat Ranjan Sarkar, who's the founder, leader of that movement. You can find all of that via andydouglas.net, the links on nordenspiritradio.org. But right now, as we go out, I think, Andy, I'd like to leave them with one of the songs, one of Prabhat Sakar's songs that you rendered in your own tune. Explain a little bit about the music, what you did with it, and the upcoming songs. So Sarkar was a Renaissance man in many ways, not only in terms of focusing on social problems, but in terms of the arts and education as well. And, you know, he wrote many books, and he also understood the power of music to stir the human soul and and move the spirit forward. He composed over 5,000 songs, which are devotional songs, songs that portray the relationship between human beings and the divine that depict that movement towards a deeper spiritual understanding. Just gorgeous, gorgeous songs, most of them in the Bengali language, which was his native tongue. I was fortunate when I was in India to be there when he was composing songs and we would sing them back to him and there was this exchange and just a beautiful process. I have taken it as one of my missions in life to study these songs, learn them, translate them. I'm working on, my next book is perhaps going to be a translation of of some of these songs. I sing them, sing them for others. And so I produced a CD of 12 of these songs. Many of the recordings we have of Prabhat Sangeet were done in India with Indian instruments and Indian musical sensibility. So I thought, why not try to produce an album with Western instruments and more of a Western sensibility? So that's what I did with this CD, Into the Mystic. This particular song you're about to play is called Esho Esho. It's one of the more popular Prabhat Sangeet songs. And really, a very simple translation would be, Come, come, Esho Esho, come, come into my heart, O Lord, come into my heart. Transform me, color me. Let me become closer to you, something like that. That is the song we're going to share right now as we go out for Spirit in Action. Again, andydouglas.net, the links on nordenspiritradio.org. You can find all 12 songs that Andy recorded, but right now we're going to listen to Esho. Esho, thank you again, Andy, so much for your devotional work in so many ways in the community and face-to-face with people. It's not a structural or intellectual alone undertaking. It's a personal undertaking, and I, I love seeing the way you render that in the world. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. No, thank you, Mark. It's been a real joy to spend time with you. Here is Andy Douglas. Esho, Esho is the song. See you all next week for Spirit in Action. Esho, Esho, Prabhu Esho. Yeah.
সৃষ্টি মধুর হাসিলি প্রভু Theme music for Song of the Soul is by Chris Williamson, and it is called Song of the Soul. Check out all things Song of the Soul on northernspiritradio.org, guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Send your Songs of the Soul to me, Mark Helps Meet, via the info on our website, and join us weekly for Song of the Soul.